Hello and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. Now you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today, we have Kevin Fay of Alcadi and Fay and the Alliance for Responsible Atmospheric Policy, or just the Alliance. And Kevin and I are going to discuss the refrigerant transition in the U.S. and beyond, a topic that's really important to us at Danfoss and really should be important to everybody in the building industry in the U.S. Kevin is vice chairman and CEO of Alcadi and Fay. Washington's oldest government and public affairs firm. He's also the executive director of the Alliance, which is a key HVAC refrigerant industry lobbying group. Kevin, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your work with the Alliance. Thanks, John. Thanks for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I have been uh, working with the Alliance uh, actually for 40 years. I was going to law school at night, working for the Air Conditioning and Refrigeration Institute, and uh, was turned into an atmospheric scientist working on the ozone depletion issue and energy efficiency issues for the industry that led to my career in managing the alliance here at our firm, but also doing a lot of other public policy work, particularly in the area of energy and environment. Yeah, and I mean, you are a legend in the field. You've been doing this a long time. You've seen previous transitions. And before we talk about the current one, let's talk about the previous one, because the two are, are really closely linked. The original Montreal Protocol is widely considered one of the most successful environmental policies ever, especially in the United States. And since it effectively solved the global ozone crisis, can you briefly describe it and explain the challenge and how the Montreal Protocol was used to solve it? Sure. Well, and, and uh, let me just say the Montreal Protocol has been a uh, very rewarding experience. No one expected it to be as successful as it has been. It's not only considered an effective environmental policy, it's literally considered to be one of the most effective treaties ever negotiated. A big factor in that is, I'd say, is inclusiveness. Policymakers, NGOs, and industry all have a seat at the table. The governments are the decision makers on treaties, obviously. But in terms of the discussion and debate, it's very inclusive in terms of identifying the issues, identifying solutions. It's also governed by a technology and economic assessment process that takes into consideration, for example, the issues of developing countries and their special needs. And it's governed also by a comprehensive scientific assessment panel. And then finally, added to it was a finance mechanism that helped provide assistance for transition to developing countries to go to new low or no ozone depleting technologies. So in that sense, it's also probably one of the most effective technology transition programs ever adopted globally. It really does just bring a tremendous number of stakeholders to the table. And like you mentioned, whether it's in government, industry, technology, the developing world, and, and it's still very functioning today. And in fact, it's still being used as the basis for the transition we're starting now. But before we really jump into that, let's talk about why we need this new transition that we're just starting now. R22 was only just phased out under the initial Montreal Protocol. Why are we transitioning to a new generation of refrigerants right now? Part of it is the effectiveness of the scientific assessment process and identifying what the issues are that we're being associated with. Secondly, has been the increasing growing concern from a climate policy standpoint of the impacts of climate change. Actually, 
in the beginning during the negotiations for the original Montreal Protocol, the climate issue was not at the forefront of everybody's mind. It was just starting to be discussed. And yet we did know that the ozone depleting substances were very significant greenhouse gases. In fact, the substitutes going to HCFCs and HFCs uh, was actually about a 90% improvement over the CFCs from a greenhouse gas standpoint. As we moved along in the decades, the growing concern with climate increased. And while we understood what the greenhouse gas impacts were of the substitutes, the HFC substitutes, the desire increased that the globe needed to act more quickly more forcefully in terms of all of the greenhouse gases, not just the fluorocarbon compounds, but also carbon dioxide and methane and and others. Yeah. So that's why we have now the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act or the AIM Act, which was signed into law at the end of 2020. Why is this law so important to our industry and really to American manufacturers and consumers? And what were the consequences if we didn't pass this law? Well, starting first with, again, back to the success of the Montreal Protocol. The protocol creates a blueprint that industry can follow in terms of technology, innovation, and implementation. It doesn't designate the result. It designates what they want you to do from a policy standpoint to achieve in terms of reduction of impacts. And so the AIM Act implements in the United States the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which was agreed to in 2016, and actually achieves an 85% phase down of HFC compounds on a global basis, which is projected between now and 2100 to save almost a half a degree Celsius of warming to the planet. The AIM Act, in essence, would implement that program in the United States. And yeah, so kind of the backdrop to this is that without the AIM Act, there were a number of states that were acting on their own. We had California, which is still going their own way through uh, the California Air Resources Board. We had some other states, about half the country, were implementing the existing or what was the SNAP Rules 2021, and we don't have to get into the whole backstory there. But the AMAC really provided a national framework so that us as an industry and manufacturers are not uh, dealing with a very fragmented U.S. market. Correct. And as you know, the industry chemical manufacturers and equipment manufacturers and other product users beyond air conditioning have spent billions of dollars innovating new technologies, innovating new compounds, while at the same time trying to preserve and increase energy efficiency and all the other safety issues associated with the use of these compounds. But the environmental policy process can be messy. And so while we had the Kigali Amendment, we had a fractured implementation layout in the United States as states were starting to move ahead, environmentalists were impatient with the progress of Kigali. And yet what we wanted was a uniform national program. And so AMAC provides that consistent with the Kigali Amendment in terms of the phase down schedule. And yet at the same time, with improvements from the old Title VI Clean Air Act provisions that govern the the phase out of ozone depleting compounds. One example is uh, we're only doing a phase down, not a phase out. That recognizes that there are some of these compounds that have very high value and societal uses, and maybe you shouldn't be automatically transitioning out of those technologies, but the technology search continues. And so the AIM Act provides the blueprint. 
that unlocks the investment in the manufacturing community to now build and distribute the new technology and next generation technologies that are both ozone depleting free and low global warming contributors. And yeah, I think it's easy to look now and kind of three quarters of the way through 2021 and say, oh, we have a a national phase down in place. But this time last year, that national phase down was really uncertain. And we were looking at what could have been really disastrous in terms of a a fragmented uh, phase down. And uh, yeah, it was very precarious there. So it's been a long journey from the Kigali Amendment Agreement in October 2016. A month later, Donald Trump was elected president. People asked us, well, what are you going to do? And we said, well, we're going to be patient. We're going to continue to educate people about the benefits, both of the Kigali Amendment and now the AIM Act. It became clear in the Trump administration that they didn't like treaties, and so they didn't really want to act on the treaty. And so we had to pick a different course, and we decided to go ahead and start to work on legislation that would, in essence, implement the treaty provisions at the domestic level. We were probably going to need some kind of legislation like that anyway if the treaty were ratified. And that's what the AIM Act does. The AIM Act uh, sets up the schedule for the phase down of the HFC compounds. It provides the authority for EPA to adopt user sector transitions that are already in process, uh, not not certified yet, but in process, and uh, provides uh, continuing dialogue among the business and NGO community and policymakers, and is also having precisely the effect we hoped for in that it's tamped down the desire of states to run off and adopt inconsistent policies at the state level. Yeah, I mean, it's really an incredible achievement by you and your colleague Samantha Slater over at HRI to get this thing through. I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting about your job in particular is that the HVAC industry is a bit of an, an anomaly among industrial groups in that we're often asking the federal government for regulation instead of many lobbyists for manufacturers who are kind of trying to bat that regulation away. Is this more interesting for you? How does this make your job easier or harder? And how did that relate to your work with the AIM Act? Well, I'd say it's definitely gotten harder over the decades. And politics, as you know, in Washington are quite complicated these days. But the fact of the matter is, is one of the hallmarks of the industries that have been involved with this is they've always been asked to do something other than the lowest common denominator in terms of policy moving forward and to step back and say, well, okay, well, what's the right thing to do? What's the issue that we're trying to address? And how do we do this and manage it in a way that's economically and technologically sensible? So that's what the industry has done continuously. And we've just found it to be far more effective to identify what you need in order to move forward and make progress and to find ways of making that happen. And that's exactly what happened in the AMAC. The AMAC took us four years to get it passed and adopted, but the economic projections were very strong of the benefits of implementing new technology, of US leadership in air conditioning technology and, and new low GWP technology. And uh, it had great bipartisan support. It's probably the most significant bipartisan support in Congress for an environmental policy issue in the last five to 10 years. Yeah. And like I said, it really is an incredible achievement. And especially since it is really a narrow piece of legislation really impacts one industry. And still it's being hailed as really a blueprint for bipartisanship going forward. I mean, it really is incredible. 
Well, and again, part of the success of the overall Montreal Protocol formula is that uh, the original environmental policy approach was you emit, therefore we cut. The Montreal Protocol approach and the domestic implementation approach that EPA has consistently adhered to has been to look longer term, identify strong long-term objectives, provide credible assurance to the policy community and the environment community that they'll be achieved, and to find better ways of achieving that from an economic standpoint. And that's exactly what's happened time and time again for these industries. And it's not just the air conditioning industry. There's the foam insulation manufacturers, fire protection industry, the automobile industry in terms of auto air conditioning. So there's a wide variety of uses of these compounds, but clearly the most identified and significant really revolve around air conditioning and refrigeration technology uses. Now, we've mentioned, of course, the Montreal Protocol, you've mentioned the Kigali Amendment and how the AMAC mirrors that Kigali Amendment phase-down schedule. What is the status of Kigali right now in the U.S.? And, and I know the Alliance and HRI are still actively lobbying for ratification. But what is the status of Kigali and why do we need it even after the AMACT? Let me answer the second part of the question first. And the answer is very simple. Global market share, U.S. technology leadership. That's why we need the Kigali Amendment to be ratified in the United States. As you know, the economic analysis suggested that having a blueprint for going forward in terms of investment in the new technology would produce significant job benefits, create 33,000 new manufacturing jobs in the United States alone over the next 10 years, and allow the U.S. to increase their share of the export market of uh, HVACR equipment by 25%. Those are huge gains, but the gains aren't automatic. The global process and the big growth markets in this technology are outside the U.S., whether it's China, India, Brazil, and the Montreal Protocol process creates a dynamic where the countries want to know who the leaders are, who the technology leaders are, who the policy leaders are, who's funding the multilateral fund that funds technology transition. And so it's very important that the U.S., which has been from the beginning the most significant leader in the Montreal Protocol process, that they're fully a partner in the Kigali Amendment as well. And so the first part of your question, when the Biden administration came in, one of the executive orders he signed on the first day by the president was an order instructing the State Department to prepare the package for transmittal of Kigali to the Senate for consideration, for advice and consent. And that package was prepared and is completed. We've had continuing discussions uh, with the administration, EPA, State Department, and the White House. We're confident that Kigali will be sent to the Senate sometime this year. And based on the conversations we've had with leadership in the Senate, on both sides of the aisle, we're anticipating that we're going to have uh, effective bipartisan consideration of and support for the Kigali Amendment. Now, that doesn't, I'm not telling you we have the votes yet, and it's a treaty. You have to have 67 votes. It's a pretty high bar. But the fact of the matter is, after four years of working on the AIM Act and the bipartisan support that it had, 
based on the votes we had identified and the, and the co-sponsors we had last year, we feel confident that the votes are out there to get this treaty ratified, and we'll continue to press that. But we still have our homework to do, and uh, we're going to continue to work to educate uh, the political process uh, up in the Senate. Uh, Only the Senate considers ratification. The House is not involved with that. But as soon as the administration is ready to go, we're ready to go. And as we said back in 2016, we're going to be patient. We've said the same here. We're going to be patient. We're going to keep doing our work. And then in the meantime, AMACT implementation is well underway. The first rules from the AMACT are actually expected to be signed later this month, and implementation will begin essentially October 1st of this year. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that implementation's already started, and we're already looking at, a, I think, a 10% reduction in available HFC supply in 2022, right? Right. So that kind of gets me to my biggest question on the AMAC and the actual implementation is this issue of 2024. And I know we've discussed it, you know, internally, but explain the issues that come with the AMAC's first big phase down drop of 40% in 2024 and why that's such a challenge. It's a significant challenge just because of the lead times necessary in terms of making the equipment transition. Uh, As you know, there are some technical issues associated with the transition to the low GWP substances, the first of which is approval by the building codes and standards process. That's been a little bit delayed. And so while the industry might be able to manufacture the equipment and the chemical companies are able to manufacture the substitutes, currently in most states, you would not be allowed to install that kind of equipment using those chemicals And so we need a rapid transition towards both completion of the building codes and standards for low GWP technology and then implementation. We do think that's going to happen, but there's a lot of work involved in that. Secondly, some sectors have already achieved fairly significant transition. The auto industry, for example, which is one of the single largest uses of uh, HFC compounds, is uh, probably at least three quarters of the way through in terms of new product. But the biggest use of the refrigerants for that technology is in service. And so the service demands continue on even after you've made the transition to the new equipment. We have the similar issue as we make the transition to new equipment in the air conditioning and refrigeration sectors. The service requirements are still very significant. So it is not an impossible schedule. But it is a significant, meaningful step. 2024 is a, is a 40% step down from the baseline. Uh, the baseline was actually a while back. It was 2011 to 2013. And there's been fairly significant growth since then. So it's, it's more than just a 10% or a 40% cut. It's probably more like a 20% and 50% cut. So it requires the industry to do things right in terms of the technology implementation, but it also requires the industry to do things better from service standpoint, boosting reclaim of old material. And that's going to be something that requires cooperation, again, among the industry, among policymakers, and among the environment community in order to make that happen. And at the same time, we know that innovation will also continue And despite, in most of these instances, despite the predictions of significant delays or higher costs or whatever, 
typically the industry has found themselves, once they understand the blueprint, once they understand the mandate, once they understand what the law requires them to do, we've managed to beat the objectives rather than miss them. And so we have to stay focused on that for the next uh, three to five years to make sure we're consistent with that, because we'll want to do that both from an environmental standpoint, as well as from a legal standpoint, both domestically and internationally with regard to the Kigali Amendment, assuming we have ratified it. Yeah, I think it is a big challenge, but I think that we can achieve this. And we're well, but I think you're right. We need to do a lot better job with reclaim, recycle, and making sure that there's available supply. And like you said, I mean, the big challenge is not necessarily new equipment, but the service. You know, you put a new residential AC equipment in there, it's going to be there for 10, 15 years. And if you put it in today, it's using HFC. And we need to understand the single largest source of emission of HFCs today is leaks, service, or repair or disposal. So all of those provide areas for improvement. And it's going to require much more attention to detail among the service sector, which is very large, within the distribution network and with the OEMs. Absolutely. Now, we have a bit of a blueprint for this already because we've seen Europe go through this transition. I mean, what was their experience and what can we learn from it and do better maybe? I'd say in the European experience, they had some issues associated with the implementation of the FGAS rules in Europe, some dealing with they were working off of a schedule that was probably a little more accelerated than what's contained in the Kingali Amendment, which if you do that, you're going to likely increase your costs. And I think that's part of what happened. You still had some of these transition issues. Some of the building codes issues existed in Europe as well and are still being worked on to be resolved. And then they also are working at the same time to improve their service sector. So I think the beginning of the phase down in Europe had some bumpy roads, and I think things have settled out there as they've been learning by doing as well. And then at the same time, as we saw in the ozone-depleting substances, they've had some issues, some, some fairly important issues and significant issues related to the uh, incursion of illegal HFC materials, which we're working with our government here to make sure we are ready to address from the very beginning. But they're starting to sort out, and I know that they're beginning the, the assessment process of the next generation of their FGAS rule. But I think the industry is, things have settled down a bit and things are definitely better there now than they were at the very beginning. Yeah. And hopefully we can avoid some of that bumpiness, but kind of leads me to my last question. As we wrap up here, now the AIM Act has passed, you've mentioned some of the short-term challenges. What do you see as the bigger challenges as we move forward, maybe not in the next year or two, but maybe in the next five years, 10 years as we implement this next transition? Well, you know what? I, I think very exciting things has happened because of our activities is that the global community has really come around to recognizing the importance of air conditioning and refrigeration technology and are much more concerned today about access issues and energy efficiency issues. And I think those are going to be two driving issues coming out of this where Hopefully, there are opportunities for the industry to continue to expand. You know, the projection is the market for air conditioning and refrigeration technology around the globe outside the U.S. is projected to double in the next decade. And so that's great. But 
with more focus on climate, you're going to have more global warming. So there's going to be more of a need for that air conditioning and refrigeration. But we're going to have to focus on how we can get more out of it with less energy consumption. And that's going to be a major focus, I think, over the next decade. Another particular issue that's very exciting that the industry has been involved in and and flows out of our work on HFCs is a group we created called the Global Food Cold Chain Council. There was a lot of early focus on air conditioning. There wasn't that much focus on refrigeration. And yet the UN uh, put out a study that, that said that if you ranked food loss and waste by country, food loss and waste would be the third highest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. 4.4 billion metric tons, and that a better cold chain around the world would help cut that in half. We had a very excellent webinar earlier this week. There's a UN Food Systems Summit next week, and we've promoted an action agenda out of that that will help contribute to financial mechanisms and data gathering programs that will lead to the expansion of a sustainable food cold chain around the globe, which will help not only for food, but for vaccines. So we're a very exciting area that's actually, I'd say it's less regulatory and more economic opportunity all the way around. So the growing demand, the desire for more access to the technology, and the need for figuring out how to do that in a more energy efficient way, lay out a very ambitious agenda for the next 5, 10, 20 years. I think you're right. I mean, it really is exciting. The opportunities are there. And I do believe the technology to overcome some of these challenges is currently available. But I do, like you said, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in this space in the next decade or so. And we're fortunate because our companies have been leaders at this. They are, I think, the finest example of the embodiment of sustainability principles at work, uh, society, economy, and environment. And again, that's what's made the Montreal Protocol successful. That's what's made implementation of Title VI of the Clean Air Act successful and what will make the AIM Act implementation successful and longer term allow the industry to continue to, to prosper and grow and provide a sustainable solutions to citizens around the world. Well, I don't think I can say it any better than that. Uh, thanks, Kevin. That was a great way to wrap it up. I'd like to thank you again for joining us. Kevin Fay of Alcadian Fay and of the Alliance for Responsible Atmospheric Policy. Thank you again. Anything else to add? That's it. Thanks. I think we've covered a lot and I appreciate <laughs> your interest and support. And uh, we've got a lot of work to do and let's uh, keep on going. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And that's it for this episode of the Visionary Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Kevin Fay, for joining us. And don't forget to subscribe to the Envisionary Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, my name is John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinion 
opinions of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website, computer, or playing device.